This is a download from News Talk 106 to 108. To download other programmes or for more information, go to newstalk.ie. Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. The really skilled writer who writes a memoir never gives anything away. I think when you write a memoir, you feel an obligation to tell the truth, so therefore you avoid that as you're writing it. Whereas you're writing a story or a novel or a short story, you can use your life and transmute it into the art and the work. I think you have a greater freedom because you can change things. We expect memoirs to tell the truth. We don't expect fiction to tell the truth about life. I mean, a wonderful memoir is Elizabeth Bowen's Seven Winters. It tells you almost nothing and everything about her earlier life. Many writers write the most wonderfully skilled memoirs in which they reveal what they want and they make of their own lives a story or a novel and they shape it in those ways. Look at Oscar Wilde's De Profundis, the most wonderful condemnation of Lord Alfred Douglas and it sets the tone for every biography of Oscar Wilde written in the 20th century. So he controls his image forever. How important is the truth to memoir? And does truth get in the way of a good story? Hello, good morning and you're very welcome to Talking Books with me, Susan Cahill. Well, this week's show focuses on the highs and lows of the creative writing process and asks, is writing a conscious craft? Three of Ireland's top creative writing teachers discuss imagination in the classroom, a new collection of essays on the art of creative writing and explain the intriguing relationship between memory, autobiography and memoir. And... In keeping with this revealing and most intimate jaunt, we look at one powerful and compelling memoir, The Accidental Teacher, Life Lessons from My Silent Son, an autism memoir by Annie Lubner-Lehman. This is a show about perseverance and patience, craft and creativity. But first, the American author and journalist Ernest Hemingway once said, It's none of their business that you have to learn to write. Let them think you are born that way. So with that provocative comment in mind, this morning's show boldly asks, can creative writing be taught? And if so, how should it be taught? And what is best practice? Imagination in the Classroom, Teaching and Learning Creative Writing in Ireland has just been launched by Four Courts Press and is the first extensive exploration of the history and practice of teaching creative writing as a distinct discipline in Ireland. The volume is edited by three of Ireland's most distinguished and respected creative writing teachers, Anne Fogarty, Eilish Nudivna and Aver Walsh, and presents some thought-provoking insights and contributions from leading authors and teachers in the field, such as Sinead Morrissey, Leanne O'Sullivan, Gerard Daw, Roddy Doyle, Carlo Gebler, to name but a few. What's unique about this book is that it offers readers incredibly useful and practical insider knowledge and advice on the creative writing process. And to quote one of the book's popular contributors, the very wise Roddy Doyle, write first, worry later. Now, just to give you a bit of a flavour for some of the chapters in this wonderful compilation, we have Paul Perry's Imaginative Constellations, the Creative Writing Workshop as Laboratory. We have Nessa O'Mahony, Virtual Worlds, Teaching Creative Writing in an Online Environment. 
We have Mary O'Donnell's Writing as Process, Truth and Sincerity in the Poetry Workshop. And also there is Beginnings, Becoming a Teacher of Creative Writing. Well, earlier in the week, myself, Anne, Ailish and Ava got together and had a very lively chat about books and authors. I have to say, it was great fun. I started out with a big open question. Can creative writing be thought? Let's take a listen. Hello, my name is Ava Welch and I teach in the School of English in University College Cork. Hello, I'm Mary O'Donnell and I'm a writer and I teach in NUI Maynooth. Hello, I'm Eilish Nigwivna and I'm a novelist and short story writer. Yeah, of course you can teach writing. I mean, it's a thorny question and there's scepticism about it out there still, even though it's taught all over the place. It's accepted that you can teach technique and craft, that you can teach people how to structure a story, um, what point of view is, how to develop characters, how to avoid too many adverbs or too many adjectives, all that sort of thing. But I think you can also teach them in a much more creative way because, you know, what is teaching? It's kind of a mixture of telling people things and drawing something out of them and encouraging them. And I think that that's the kind of balance we have to strike in teaching creative writing. I think you can definitely teach creative writing, but I do have a a slight caveat. I think it helps if the writer, the apprentice writer, is hungry, really hungry. Sometimes I feel it doesn't matter all that much if they're not obviously madly talented. I think talent is something that can be worked on. So that hunger, would that be for getting your voice heard? Would it be for telling your own personal story, whether it's a memoir? Is it the kind of the hunger to be recognised as a writer or the hunger to tell a story? That's a very interesting question, Susan, actually. I think for some people it is simply the hunger to to write. You want to write at all costs, to express. You don't even know what sometimes. I think for some people it's a journey that has something to do with anger and they're going to get revenge on the world and damn it, they'll do it through writing. But, you know, generally I think, yeah, people are driven by something. And, you know, what I've noticed is that the first time someone gets something actually published and sees their own name in print, it really nourishes them and it may be on an ego level but it it actually sends them right back to keep on writing and so you know that sort of success creates more success. Eilish can we talk a little bit about the developments of creative writing and the teaching of creative writing in Ireland and across the world. When did we actually first have creative writing courses? I presume writers informally workshopped with fellow writers or with friends and family for years and years. Well, first writers, of course, have always taught themselves, but they've often gathered together in groups. Yates, for example, was a member of something called the Rhymers Club that met in the Cheshire Cheese in a pub in London. And um, there's, there's always been lots of groups like that. It's hard enough to pinpoint a starting point for the kind of more formal workshop or teaching of creative writing but in 1936 they already had started at the Iowa Writers Workshop, the most famous of all programs in the United States and um, it's developed exponentially in America so there are something like 300 postgraduate programs and 500 undergrad programs in in America at the moment. Then it started in the UK um, somewhat later I think in the 70s in the University of East Anglia still the most uh, the first one seems to kind of take the biscuit as far as prestige is concerned. And of course some of the very successful Irish writers like Anne Enright have attended that course. Indeed yeah, several Irish writers have attended that course. The ones that come to mind are Anne Enright Deirdre Madden did it for instance and there there are others as well. In Ireland creative writing courses and workshops started in the community as just to distinguish it from the university is not a really very good term but in in, say uh, List Old Writers Week in 1971 or 72 is the starting 
starting point for, for workshops there and um, they developed kind of reasonably slowly um, over the 70s but in the 80s it seems to me they begin to expand rapidly and you have the National Women's Writers Workshop and various other workshops really spring up all over the place and the whole idea of going to a group or a class or a workshop or a writing, a writing group comes much much more popular in Ireland but it doesn't start in the universities here until 1998 when Trinity began their programme in, in writing at the Oscar Wilde Centre and then from then on UCD started in 2006 and it's 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 in all the universities now it's grown very rapid over the last 12 or 13 years and of course whether it's in St. Pat's in Drumcondra in Trinity in UCD in NUI Minutes we have writers in residence I think Leanne O'Sullivan the very young and very talented West Cork poet is in UCC that's right in UCC we've had writer in residence now the last 10 years or more in fact more than that and we're very fortunate at the moment that uh, Leanne O'Sullivan the award winning poet who writes partly about her, the Bear Peninsula where she grew up uh, is now a writer in residence and she teaches the MA in creative writing students in UCC but also teaches broader workshops for the writing community in UCC and has connections with uh, Triscoll and others so we're very fortunate to have this relationship between writers and the university and it's something that the Arts Council has been funding uh, through the various centres for creative writing uh, in Ireland. Mary, can we talk a little bit about the minefield that is a writer's group or a writer's class? Whether you're attending a low-key class that is somewhere local in a VC centre or in a support service capacity in a women's group or whether it's the high-octane masters in one of the um, fine academic institutions that we have. Can you tell me about it? Because I could imagine that it gets very emotional, a bit tricky at times, very confrontational because people have their personal stories that they're bringing to the table. They're possibly a bit older and they have their voice and they want their voice heard. It can be a, a minefield. It's um, it's a very delicate process, I think. By and large, things run fairly smoothly and I think most people are nourished and find something. But occasionally, whether it's a poem or a piece of fiction, somebody uncovers something. It's like lifting the, the top off a scab and it starts to bleed and ache and is very sore. And yes, you can have tears and you can have recriminations if the work isn't well received in the manner that the person has expected. Now, I'll just give you the, the that end of it, first of all. I do remember years ago, a fairly well-known poet saying that a man in his workshop basically went for his throat at one point. Now, that's obviously the extreme end of things. It doesn't happen. But I have had people who will, who will weep. And I have had one person who just walked out for the reason, I think because I never had any chance to address it afterwards. I brought in the short story of Raymond Carver's called Fat, which some people will know. It's about a very large man who's incredibly erotic, but he enters this diner and his fatness is part of his beauty. And this woman left the workshop. She herself was very overweight and she said she didn't know why anyone had to write a story like that and she walked out. So something was very touched. Some scab was lifted there, quite unintentionally on my part. It never crossed my mind. I wasn't thinking of it in that light. But I imagine if you're at a writer's group and somebody's bringing up in their story an issue of bereavement or abuse of some sort or an infatuation that that went wrong and it all becomes part of the story that they're using, whether it's part of their memoir or whether it's part of a fictional story, that somebody bringing that up could almost throw another person in the class off balance because they're not expecting that, you know, what their sore topic is being brought into play in a discussion in a writer's programme. So how do you facilitate that? Because that could come close to a counselling session. I think you have to make very clear at the beginning it's not a therapy session. You're not always aware of what's going to come up, but I teach memoir class and that's directly from life and we're there to learn how to write. 
but you can't write well unless it's authentic, true, connected to who you are, to what you want to write about. So at the beginning, I have to say, I'm not a therapist and this isn't a session. Yet we have to say that everything that happens is respectful and supportive of the work, as Mary was saying. You know, you receive it in the correct way. Everyone else is writing the same, so that has a kind of a parity of trust. But I think as the teacher, you're under a very strong responsibility to ensure that everyone's work is treated with respect and with approval. You're there to write. Just to add to that, I think that a, a distinction does have to be made then between, all right, someone presents this material that it may, quite often it could be something to do with a childhood abuse or something very, very unpleasant and violent. Our responsibility and our challenge as writing teachers is to get to the point where they can make that. It's not just a confession. Now, I'm not speaking of memoir. I'm speaking of fiction. It's not a confessional item. They have to transmute that into something that has artistic value as well. That is really our challenge. So, Ailish, I suppose that's in terms of using their life experience to develop a very robust plot and some very solid characters. Mm. I would say that quite a lot of the best fiction is coming out of life experience. I would often set exercises, you know, related to memory of a childhood event or a moment of insight or a moment when something dramatic happened. Um, that, that's a very good trigger for people. I always kind of assume, though, somehow you are able to transcend the personal and the autobiographical in a class about story writing and fiction by putting a fictional shape, an artistic shape on it. That may be an act of therapy in itself. Indeed, I believe it probably is. But that's what writers do. And somehow I don't have that much experience of people using a writer's class in a confessional way. Somehow the, they, they learn to, to mould their memories and their experience and to, to create a work of art out of them. I know that all sounds a bit airy-fairy, but I think that is what happens somehow. Some parts of it you can't quite explain. I always have a tendency to assume that everything is fiction and that's a good thing to assume if you're a teacher and um, I think to tell A, okay, that it's not a therapy session but B, that you're you're going to just treat everything as fiction so the writer knows where it's coming from but they don't necessarily have to tell us all about that, you know. So it's creating a very safe creative space for the writer. Yeah, I think in the various areas in which emotion can come into it and, you know, if there's no emotion in it, it's not going to be any good anyway, is my feeling about literature at the moment. It's all about things like broken love affairs, broken hearts, bereavement. <laughs> it's it's mostly about that sort of stuff. So that's okay. People invest a lot into creative writing. They invest a lot into writing their history essays and one would hope and their English essays and so on as well. But yeah, there's, there's more of a personal input. So the critiquing of it is very delicate. You do need to create in the classroom and you can do this actually particularly I think in the context of what you call the high octane courses, the MAs and that, a kind of atmosphere of trust because the students are together in the group for a whole year they get to know each other very well you notice a kind of change usually after about four or five weeks towards the end of the first term whereas I think maybe in the more short term you know the workshop that lasts for the weekend or whatever obviously that's not going to really happen Yes I, I think the um, the type of workshop where people came into it perhaps thinking this might be therapeutic I think that doesn't exist as much anymore and I think it was more a feature of the 1980s style of workshop when we simply weren't au fait 
with the methods and practices. But nowadays, almost everyone has sat in on some kind of workshop, whether it's writing or otherwise, and they have a fair idea that it's a closed session. It's like perhaps an AA meeting. What goes on in the room stays in the room, doesn't go beyond it. And that does create trust very quickly. Now, Aver, a memoir won the Board Gash book this year. It was the wonderful Michael Harding. Is there a fixed set of rules in terms of how to write a really good memoir? And would there be a selection of memoirs that you think make for not just very engaging and interesting reading, but also serve as an educational perspective or as a tool for anyone interested in breaking into the area before they attend a class? My classes, my memoir classes, I always ask students to read one or two memoirs. I give them a list. I give them some extracts. Obviously, the classic in the genre is my own. The wonderful Sissy's Abattoir, still available in the shops uh, and acclaimed, well, acclaimed by me anyway. But I would I would certainly use John McGarren's memoir. Uh, I think because of the relationship between his writing and his life. Uh, a wonderful, my own favourite, is Lorna Sage's Bad Blood, which is the book that made me want to write a memoir. And I'd also ask uh, students, say, to look at memoir by Hugo Hamilton or Nulo Fuelon, both mem- Irish memoirs that were very influential in terms of people reading them and people connecting with them. Then all of the great writers, the ones I admire, have written wonderful memoirs. You can never go to the memoirs for the truth of their lives. I think go to their fiction. But, you know, if you're asking someone to re- start writing short stories, or they're writing short stories you send them to great short stories so I would have five or six memoirs that I would send people to you write whatever you want in a memoir but all of these are I think works that they will find a kind of a shape and a purpose too also think about when did someone write their memoir the middle of their lives the end of their lives and what, what stimulated it one interesting exercise is to read Philip Roth's novel I Married a Communist and then read uh, Claire Bloom's memoir, Leaving the Doll's House, a fictional version, a memoir version of essentially, I think, two sides of a relationship. So you get a very strong sense of both the fictionalising on one and the memoir writing of the other, because they do overlap. And just a minute ago, you said something very interesting. Don't read the memoir to find the truth. You go to the fiction. Mm. That's very interesting. The really skilled writer who writes a memoir, never gives anything away. The really skilled reader will find, I think, in the fiction, in the short stories. I think when you write a memoir, you feel an obligation to tell the truth, so therefore you avoid that as you're writing it. Whereas you're writing a story or an, a novel or a short story, you can use your life and transmute it into the art and the work. I think you have a greater freedom because you can change things. We expect memoirs to tell the truth. We don't expect fiction to tell the truth about life. I mean, a wonderful memoir is Elizabeth Bowen's Seven Winters. Tells you almost nothing and everything about her earlier life. And uh, many writers write the most wonderfully skilled memoirs in which they reveal what they want and they make of their own lives a story or a novel and they shape it in those ways. Look at Oscar Wilde's De Profundis most wonderful condemnation of Lord Alfred Douglas and it sets the tone for every biography of Oscar Wilde written in the 20th century. So he controls his image forever. So the skilled writer, memoirs often come toward the ends of lives, I think, ends of writing lives. And the skilled writer, the skilled novelist and short story writer, they can do so much with that. And when they are their own subject, uh, they can hide beautifully. Well, speaking of memoir, and just to pick up on, on Aver's thoughts, I recently read the American writer Anne Patchett's memoir, Truth and Beauty. And it's about her relationship with another young writer called Lucy Greeley who's of Irish extraction she's dead now and it's about the very intense relationship of both of them as they go through writing schools and various writing programmes in the States so on one level it's about a friendship a very unusual friendship I won't say too much because I know people would like to read this but it's also about writerly ambition and the, the intriguing title is Truth and Beauty and I came away from this memoir feeling that Patchett had not been too hard on herself really there were very many potholes that needed to be filled in and really there were more questions asked to be asked at the end than anything uh, which I think is 
always very intriguing and makes a memoir particularly interesting. And I would agree with Ava that if you want to go looking for the truth, go to the fiction. Go and read, you know, Chekhov or, for example, Lady with Lapdog and you'll find truth about lots of things there. Now, Eilish, Imagination in the Classroom, Teaching and Learning Creative Writing in Ireland has just been brought out by Four Courts Press and all three of you have wonderful contributions in it. Can you talk to me about the book? It's a really unique book. It's the first book of its kind to be published in this country. It's based essentially on a symposium that we organised a couple of years ago at the Royal Irish Academy on this subject, Teaching and Learning Creative Writing in Ireland, because it seemed that it had been going on for quite a while now in Ireland and it was time to bring the practitioners together to open a dialogue and a debate about how best to teach it. I see it as as a kind of opening up of a discussion about how creative writing can be taught. I, th- I think the question that we have dealt with, can it be taught, is, is over now. It is being taught in all our universities in workshops and festivals and creative writing has been taught in schools in the UK now. It's a growing subject. It's getting more structured. We need to ask, is the traditional kind of workshop where you respond to people's story or poem or whatever enough or should there be more and what should that be? And uh, the essays are they're quite varied. We gave free reign to people really to talk about what they do in the classroom, what they think should be done or any theoretical thoughts they have about the teaching of creative writing and they responded I think in a very creative way but I see it as a book which opens up the debate and I hope there'll be lots more books there have to be. Now Mary there's a very interesting contribution from the writer Sinead Morrissey. Sinead Morrissey's essay is called On Theft Teaching Poetry Composition to Undergraduates and actually it's it's a very teacherly exposition of what, ex- of what her practice is something which writing teachers don't often reveal to one another and I think from that point of view it was it's very very useful but from a student's point of view she talks about how she distills the writing rules down to three essential principles. Showing, not telling. Specificity and economy. And she operates from those. But what the essay also does is she she enlarges on types of poems that she offers that can be written by students and which I think are quite liberating. Things such as the found poem, for example, where the poem can be made up of any language which the poet does not write him or herself. So the language can be taken from anywhere. It can be letters, newspaper articles, contents pages, scientific dictionaries. I think sometimes when students are exposed to those those experimental possibilities, that it frees them up from the spectre of worrying about whether they should be writing a sonnet or a villanelle or whether they have ten syllables to a line and five stresses. And so that's very useful. And she also speaks about uh, the prompts that she sometimes gives students. So those would be specific words which can you know trigger off various 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 ideas and send people spinning off to whatever dark memory is waiting to come out. And I imagine economy must be really tough. Well, for some it is. Personally, I find that killing end rhyme for a while is very tough. Rather than economy, they do mostly understand economy. They don't understand sometimes how to remove inessential conjunctions like but and and, that sort of thing, and how they take up unnecessary space in a good poem. Some people who have learnt to rhyme in the 19th century style of rhyming are reluctant to stop you know to stop end rhyming and to try something else for a while I do like people to just try and do something else for the time that they're with me but to come back to Sinead Morrissey I think that her approach is one that certainly encourages people to you know to spiral out from whatever concept they carried into the workshop situation and take a risk and try something else that can be quite starkly modern. Ava how 
thorny an issue is the whole question of grammar because I can imagine some people who may not have had the same educational privileges they may be coming to a writer's class at 50 or 60 and want to write a memoir but they may be left school at, at 14 so their grammar may not be as developed as one would hope that shouldn't preclude them from going to a writer's class so how do you bridge that gap and bring in inclusivity I think it's a very important point because everybody wants to write and I, I've taught in different courses I think you adapt for what the needs of the group is and you just ask at the beginning you know what do you want to do everyone in a class writes and often they share what they would written maybe the first week so they'll read it out that's one thing and it's maybe finding a voice and finding a confidence often I would say to students in a repeat class maybe bring back something typed up that we can all read and then if there's issues I never correct then because you can't do that if somebody has as you say they're returning to writing it's going to be a slow process but if they become more and more serious about the work and they ask you then you can do it and then if they go further down the line and they're looking towards maybe doing publishing editors of magazines and journals and publishers will always want it properly proofed but if the writer is serious about this and they want your help you can then give them advice as to what to do and how to do I'd be honest I'd say no one should you shouldn't stop you in wanting to write but if you are going to write and you feel your voice is an important one there are very good professional copy editors that you could work with and often you're trying to get a voice so for example you might be writing something and you know using the language of your own world and that world you need to keep that you know you need to keep that in your head so not everyone's going to write literary prose but if they're going to write and they're going to find in their a voice in their head and put it down on paper and work on it at some point if you're submitting that work say you're sending it off to a magazine or something all the editors of magazines will tell me they'll want to see the work properly presented but you can get help on that and I think that's legitimate Ailish if you were to recommend maybe three books for anyone listening before they go to a writer's group or a writer's class no matter how structured or formalised the class is what books would you recommend? Well I would recommend students interested in writing to read very widely and to read if it's short stories Stories, Claire Keegan, Raymond Carver, Kevin Barry, Chekhov, obviously, Joyce is the Dead and that sort of thing. But there are good how-to books. I mean, there's an awful lot of bad how-to write books, but ones that I would recommend are Jane Smiley, 13 Ways of Looking at the Novel, and Janet Burroway, Imaginative Fiction. I would recommend for poets Stephen Fry's book. Stephen Fry's wonderful book, The Ode Not Taken. It's funny, it's erudite, it explains all the grammatical doubts and punctuation glitches that people sometimes worry about when they're trying to write poetry. It's really good. Our from that for fiction I would recommend an anthology of short stories certainly like the Picador the old Picador one or there there are many contemporary ones all worth having I think for someone in terms of say memoir writing and memory writing either read or go online and find the extract from Proust where he talks about the narrator drinking the lime blossom tea and eating the madeleine just that moment it is to me the kernel of memory and fiction I'd recommend people to read the short stories and novels of Aileen Nguyvena and Mary O'Donnell and many other contemporary Irish writers we have such a wealth of really good short story writers and novelists we're very lucky to have them and On Becoming a Writer by Dorothy Brand is the book that I would recommend try some of the exercises there she really has it's a short clear book and any good memoir where the writer tells the truth about how to become a writer like Anthony Trollope's autobiography just tell you the truth about writing and the application of it and how you get on in your career and of course for all good writers in Ireland today the invaluable volume is Imagination in the Classroom Teaching and Learning Creative Writing in Ireland available online at www.fourcourts.com 
Eilish.ie, a must for every writer, essential reading. And that was Anne Fogarty, Eilish Nidivna and Ava Walsh talking to me about their new collection of essays, Imagination in the Classroom. The book is without doubt a first of its kind for Ireland and will definitely interest students as well as teachers of creative writing. Coming up next, we're going to keep with the theme of memoir and highlight one mother's personal journey through autism with author Annie Lubiner Lehman. Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. And you're very welcome back to Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108 with me, Susan Cahill. If there's a book or author you'd like me to cover on the show, well, why don't you send me an email at talkingbooks at newstalk.ie? Or if you've missed any of our programmes over the last couple of weeks, well, don't worry, they're all up and available as podcasts on Talking Books webpage. All you have to do is go to www.newstalk.ie forward slash talking books. Now on to a very moving and beautifully written memoir. It's called The Accidental Teacher, Life Lessons from My Silent Son by Annie Lubliner Lehman. Annie Lubner Lehman has just recently written a story about the astonishing power of human love and how families can triumph over hardship while discovering themselves along the way. Her story is engaging and at times both heartbreaking and joyful. Annie Lubner Lehman has been a freelance writer for more than 25 years. She lives and works in Michigan with her husband and three children. Her eldest son, who inspired this memoir, is now a young adult with autism. Jonah Lehman is an accidental teacher of others, including his family and friends. When I caught up with Annie, I asked her, what can we really know about autism? How much do we really know? I think that what we used to think autism was and what we think autism is now are very different things. The number explosion, the one in 88 children who are now supposedly being diagnosed, I just think that it's a much broader definition of what autism is. And you have people who require 24-7 round-the-clock care who are considered to be on the spectrum. And you have people who are high-functioning individuals who have jobs and have marriages and children and are also considered to be on this spectrum. So when my son was diagnosed 27 years ago, autism was a much different sort of thing. It was a very, very severe diagnosis. Nowadays, if you're said to be on the autism spectrum, sometimes it, it can be more severe, but sometimes it can be quite mild and very treatable. So autism, according to my neurologist who uh, works with my son, is sort of a, a wastebasket term because, you know, the parameters are so broad and it's very hard to really put your finger on what you would call severe autism as opposed to Asperger's like syndrome. So uh, it's a very, very broad category. And I think it's a little bit of a problem because to confuse people who need so many services, lifelong services, with people who need just some supports in the early stages of schooling is confusing. Now, Annie, I have to say The Accidental Teacher, Life Lessons from My Silent Son, an autism memoir, is a profoundly beautiful and moving read. I sat Thank down you. to read it on Friday night. I thought I'd read maybe the first three three or four chapters and then I'd finish mm. it over the weekend. And I uh-huh. actually read it right through. And it's okay. a short enough book, but it's an incredibly powerful book and hugely humbling. Can you tell me about the writing process? I didn't write the book until my son was an adult and in a home of his own. He lives now 
in a home a mile from our home, and I needed perspective. I needed to be able to look back at what I'd been through. I certainly didn't have the time to write a book when I was uh, caring for him. I felt that it was really important to have an honest parental perspective on a situation that could look back at the years that I had cared for my son and also write a book that didn't necessarily have a treatment protocol or a happily ever after ending because, you know, uh, we all do what we can when we have children with autism to try to help them. But some children make more progress than others. And what about the parents who do everything humanly possible and, you know, their dreams of helping their children aren't fully realized simply because their kids are limited in what they can do. So I felt it was very important to have a book like this, especially for people who were in the special education field and especially for people uh, who deal with children with autism because I found that so many people were so clueless about what we were up against. I just felt an honest, from-the-heart telling of the story would benefit not only um, educators and people who work with individuals with special needs, but for other parents as well who were dealing with the frustrations of doing everything humanly possible but not being as effective as they had hoped. So many of us are in that situation. Now, you begin the book with a very heartbreaking chapter on the missed milestones and how you suddenly realised that lovely little Jonah was certainly a little bit different to all the other boys and girls and how you try Mm -hmm. to compensate for that difference with your friends, with your extended family. Can you tell me about that? Well, it was was very you know, difficult. And at the time, you know, it's like I write in the book that, you know, when they're younger, it becomes much easier to envision them making up, you know, lost time. But when you have an eight-year-old and a nine-year-old and a 10-year-old who's having toileting accidents, it becomes much more difficult, you know. And people, you know, who think a three-year-old who does strange things is cute, not going to think it's so cute when he's 10 years old and a big kid. And um, it was very, very difficult. You know, part of it was also being honest and being able to step back and say, you know, you have to look at what the situation is. And sometimes the decisions you have to make are, you know, I I sometimes say you make the less bad of two difficult decisions. (laughs) Like, for example, um, even in choosing what, what kind of uh, school programming my son would be in. He had inclusion as a possibility where he would be mainstreamed a good part of the day. And then there was a center program uh, where he would get more one-on-one intervention. And while inclusion sounded great, because it really made sense on so many levels, because, you know, you put a nonverbal child in a room with non other nonverbal children, how much stimulation are they going to get? So, of course, putting him in a mainstream situation, he would have more opportunity to interact, be exposed to language. But then I had to be honest about what my son's limitations were and I realized that, you know, he was extremely limited and that he would probably benefit more from the one-on-one intervention, that kind of like focused eye-to-eye contact that he would get in a a one-to-one program. And so it was very difficult because inclusion sounded fabulous and sounded, seemed to make so much sense, but I had to be honest about who my son was and what his needs were and make my decisions accordingly. And they were hard because, um, you know, to some people, it, it didn't seem to make sense, and yet I had to be honest about my gut feelings about what was right for my child. And that's what I really, I am a great believer that, you know, I don't judge anything anybody else does with whatever diet they do, whatever treatments. I know that some people do very oxygen treatments, some do chelation. I applaud parents who do whatever they do because they're really just trying to help their child. I don't judge, sit in judgment of anybody, but ultimately you have to make the best decision for 
your own child. Nobody knows your child better than you. I don't care what degrees anybody has. As a parent, you know your child and you you have a sense of what's best for them. And, And you should trust your gut because ultimately you know, you get to make those decisions. You will become the voice that your child doesn't have over the course of his lifetime. And in making those choices, did you find the judgments of society and the judgment society had for some of your decisions, did you find that very rough going? Because you have the best intentions for your child and you know your child's capacity, their creativity. So how difficult was that to manage in terms of your own expectations? Well, you know, it was very hard because people, you know, people judge, but it's like anything else. People just don't know what you live through until they're living through the same situation. And you get tougher as you get older. You know, you become um, a real advocate. You know, a lot of us parents become really staunch advocates for our children. And I had my moments where I would break down and feel very vulnerable and sad about, you know, having to defend this kid who I love so much. But as time went on, I got tougher and I, I kind of viewed it as other people's problems. And, you know, if if people in today's world can't accept diversity of any kind, that's really their problem. I will go up to people all the time. When I see somebody with an autistic child, I'll, I'll immediately go up to them and introduce myself and give them my card and say, if you have any questions, please call me because I'm 30 years into this thing. <laughs> I know I know the situation well and anything I can do. And I've heard from many different parents along the way. And you say in the book, seeing how others reacted to Jonah taught me so much about myself. I thought that was very, that was a very powerful sentence because I imagine it's cut at everything. Absolutely. Like Jonah comes home every Sunday for dinner. And to this day, my husband will not give him a cookie unless he says cookie. And it's very hard for him to say cookie. You have to model it for him. I, on the other hand, and the mother who are, I'm just going to sneak him the cookie and forget the saying the word, you know, let him have what he wants. So we have very different approaches at this point. I'm just the mother who wants to just love him and be with him. And my husband is still wanting to stretch him and teach him and make him better, whatever that is. And my other two children are very, very loving. They've had their own um, situations in, in dealing with this issue having a sibling like this like for example my kids are now dating and you know when they date you know they have to tell the other people that they have a, a a sibling who has severe disabilities and that's a you know for some people that's part of the equation is that something i consider before you marry somebody and you know i i, I always tell my kids you know whoever you end up with if you end up with anyone at all you know um if they can't handle the realities of a situation like this then goodbye and good luck because the reality is that my husband and I went into this marriage with no history in either of our families of any kind of disability. And here we ended up with a child with a very, very severe disability. So, you know, life is a crapshoot in many, many respects. And you have to, um, you know, when when it comes to dating and to finding a partner in life, you have to have somebody who, who thinks like you. And my kids are very clear about that. Can we talk a little bit about facilitated communication? I know it didn't work for your family. Although if we read the newspapers and follow the trends, Facilitated communication has been praised for certainly working with the different complexities of autism. Can you talk to me about the cocktail of treatments and interventions that you went through? Well, we tried really everything that was available at the time that Jonah was a young child. We went to an institute that wasn't so far away for a week where we were trained to work one-on-one with our son. And I write about this in the book. It was called the Sunrise Program. And we worked one-on-one. We recruited people and 
we had an intensive program. You know, you have to remember also I had no other children at the time, so he was the focus of my life. I quit work, and I just stayed at home and worked with him one-on-one, which is good for a while, but you can't do it indefinitely. We did see some gains in that regard, and we did, you know, when he was the entire focus of my life, there's no getting around it. I was on top of him all the time trying to teach him. So that had some benefits. There's no question about it. As far as auditory integration therapy, which was some kind of, he had to go and listen in earphones, that didn't really work out so well for him, nor did facilitated communication. But that's not to say it doesn't work for other people, because I know people who use it and swear by it. You know, who am I to judge? Well, people get treated all the time for different illnesses. Sometimes it works for some people and sometimes it doesn't. And everything is worth trying if it's going to help your kid. That's what I believe. I think that if you can afford to do it or you have access to doing things that might help your child without hurting them in any way, I wouldn't see any reason not to try it. Facilitated communication is certainly something worthwhile in many cases. And I know ABA is very, very effective with some children, especially when they start early. I would try everything out there to help your child if you can. And Annie, what was it like letting go of Jonah and allowing Jonah to go into a full-time facility where other caregivers were managing his day? Was that very difficult? Yes, it was very, very difficult and it was very difficult until we got it right, until all the pieces fell into the right place. In other words, until we had the right roommates and the right environment and the right kind of scheduling and the right kind of day program. It's very complicated and it takes a lot of time and you have to be patient and you have to remember that more than anything what you need are responsible people with good hearts because ultimately they're the ones who are going to be doing the caring of your child more than anyone else. I do have to say that you know when I speak publicly I often will say to the group. You know, when I look at Jonah's life now, I think to myself, it was very hard putting him in a home, but I see he has a life that's separate from mine, and he seems very content. I have to say, what do I want for my other children? I want them to have comfort and safety and love and access to the things they enjoy. And Jonah has those things. He's not going to go to college. He's never going to marry, but he's definitely comfortable. He's definitely safe. He's definitely loved. And he definitely has access to the things he enjoys. And so from that standpoint, I feel very gratified that his life works to the extent that it can. He seems very comfortable.
And the lovely music you heard there was from Kenneth Caniff, Aka Gilmont. And that was Annie Lehman talking to me about her wonderful memoir, The Accidental Teacher, Life Lessons from My Silent Son. Now, just to let you know, to honour Autism Awareness Month, you may be interested in downloading a free digital copy of Annie Lehman's memoir. All you need to do is go to www.press.umich.edu forward slash 219-1701 forward slash accidental underscore teacher and the code for the free download will be awareness. So that is a complimentary copy of the memoir from University of Michigan Press to honour Autism Awareness Month in April. Well, that's it for Talking Books for another week. I hope you enjoyed the show. I see the first long list of the newly named Bailey's Women's Prize for Fiction has just been announced, offering quite a sweep in geography, genre and style. Very refreshing to see and indicates that fiction writing by women is thriving. Interesting to see Donna Tartt's stunning book The Goldfinch is on the list along with Elizabeth Gilbert, Margaret Atwood and Emer McBride for her debut novel A Girl is a Half-Formed Thing. I hope to talk with some of these authors over the next few weeks. So stay tuned. Now next week I'm going all arty, edgy and left field on you and I have a very unique voice lined up for you. So plenty to look forward to there on next week's show. And just to let you know, the Doolan Writers Weekend, hosted by Hotel Doolan in County Clare, takes place next Friday the 28th of March until Sunday the 30th of March. Now they've lots of different events lined up from workshops and short story, publishing, novel and poetry writing and also on crime writing. And some of the contributors taking part are Claire Keegan, Claire Kilroy, Moya Cannon, Theo Dorgan, Anthony Gavin, Arlene Hunt, Terry Hooley and lots, lots more. Now every night I know there's going to be a crack August Kiel. There's going to be lovely Kaylee sessions also and lots of other fun and games so to speak. And as I said, it's all taking place in Hotel Doolan in Doolan County Clare. Now, if you want to get some more information on the festival, all you need to do is go to www.doolanwritersweekend.com And as I said, it should be a tremendous festival. Really interesting and sure plenty crack too. Okay, all that's left for me to do now is to say a big thank you to Owen Holligan who helped out in research and to the lovely Alan Regan on sound. We've been talking books. Why don't you take a leaf out of my one and take it handy. Talking books on News Talk 106 to For listening to this News Talk 106 to 108 podcast. To download other programs or for more information, go to newstalk.ie.